Welcome to High Noon, where we now talk about controversial subjects with interesting people in a rotating co-host format. Um, and so Maddie Kearns, Madeline Kearns of National Review, is back with us to discuss some developments in her home islands, um, as well as, as other subjects. Uh, she is also a fellow with us at IW. Um, you may have heard her on the editor's podcast for National Review, as well as read her great work over there. So welcome back, uh, Madeline Kearns, to High Noon. Thanks for having me. Um. So I really wanted to get your take on, because as I was telling you uh, right before we started this podcast, uh, people so often make fools of themselves when they're talking about um, political developments in other countries. Um, so it is especially good to have you on this week uh, to talk about um, the firing of the Home Secretary, uh, Suella Braverman, in the UK, uh, apparently over a UK, or sorry, over an op-ed that she wrote I'm calling out a double standard the police uh, in police enforcement between um, the, the enforcement that has or has not been uh, wielded against pro-Palestinian demonstrators, um, very large and sometimes borderline violent and definitely hateful demonstrations um, in in the UK over the past four weeks. Um, and then similar on the other hand, this like very aggressive enforcement against people, for example, who are holding um, the UK flag, right? Um, who who are these counter demonstrators and pointing out that there's a unacceptable double, double standard there. That op-ed apparently got her into all kinds of trouble, which culminated uh, in her getting sacked, as you say, over on that side of the, the, the pond. Um, so what is uh, your read on this? And, and what does it say about the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom that somebody who says things that seem fairly straightforward and observably true, at least from this side, uh, not only, um, you know, it's controversial to say these things, but like apparently it's outside the boundaries of what's acceptable to say in leadership in the right-wing party of Britain. Yeah. So the first thing to say is that, yes, Braverman was fired because of this op-ed, but as is often the case with these types of things, it's much more about um, party authority and her causing issues for the Prime Minister in terms of questioning his authority, uh, rather than an ideological opposition to what she was saying, which is why she's gone. So um, we've now had her letter to the Prime Minister explaining her side of what, what happened. And in that, she gives three reasons why um, she was for a long time, very unhappy with the Prime Minister. Uh, one of them is uh, to do with mass migration. And um, she said she she had given her support, and her support was quite crucial to Sunak's rise to power. Um, she had given his support on the understanding that he was going to do something about Britain's uh, mass migration problem. So uh, they had come up with this Rwanda policy, which is they were working with the Rwandan government to send asylum seekers to Rwanda so that their asylum claims could be processed there. And this is this is people who had entered the United Kingdom illegally on, on boats from across the channel. Uh, very, very controversial policy, but actually in the history of dealing with the migration issue, it's fairly normal for a country to want to have uh, things processed outside of its borders and then actually be able to make a decision because obviously as we know it's very difficult once people are here to then deport them and the UK has had a huge problem with that. So the first thing she was dissatisfied was that the Prime Minister had really failed to come through on any of his promises uh, with regards to that. They're now waiting a Supreme Court decision. Uh, Braverman 
articulated in her letter and, and gave a sense of what had been happening behind the scenes that that uh, the Prime Minister has just completely unprepared. Either way, whatever the Supreme Court decides, the UK Supreme Court, he's 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 left the country kind of unprepared on this key issue of of immigration. Uh, the second issue that she she spoke about was um, this issue of of response, uh, and you've you've articulated it yourself, but this response to October seventh, and there's been uh, quite terrifying scenes of of anti semitism, these massive protests, um, and you know, as Home Secretary, police enforcement is is part of her remit, and she's been trying to address this. She also has uh, skin in the game. Her husband is Jewish. He he lived in Israel for some time. And she feels that the Prime Minister has been weak uh, on this issue. She actually uses the word weak, so she doesn't hold back. Um, And I think what happened with this op-ed is she wanted to point out the really disappointing uh, double standard of the police, but also just failure of the police to to enforce the law as it stands. So the glorification of terror in the United Kingdom is a criminal offence. And we've seen the police adopt this strategy of witnessing crimes and sort of making a, either a mental note of it or, or a physical note of it and then following up uh, to w- w- with these investigations after the fact. This is partly a crowd control decision. They, they just feel they're outnumbered by these protesters. But obviously that sends a very, very scary message to the public, which is either, either we can't enforce the law or we won't. And I, either one of those is really, really bad. So, um, so she's, she's, she said that the the prime minister prime minister's responsibility has been uh, really disappointing. And in her op-ed, um, she laid this out. She wasn't actually criticizing the prime minister in her op-ed, but the the argument is that, or or the suggestion is rather that um, behind the scenes, she did go through the normal protocols as a cabinet uh, member of seeking approval before she got this published, but then. Um, she disregarded this is this is the suggestion she disregarded all of the um suggested edits which were trying to tone it down and she published it anyway and that is the kind of thing w- that will get you fired um so like i say not necessarily the op- what she was the substance of what she was saying but just the principle of of uh, doing things without approval that will get you fired and uh, and obviously she she knew that and she decided to do it anyway and i think what's interesting is that she now kind of represents the right of the Tory party. Um, and since uh, her departure, we've also had uh, Rishi Sunak sort of present this in the, in the context of a broader cabinet reshuffle. And he's brought back David Cameron, who we were all very relieved to see the back of when he left after creating a, a huge mess with Brexit. And it's not necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying Brexit was a terrible idea, but its execution was just about the craziest thing ever. I mean, David Cameron even says himself that he only went ahead with this referendum because he thought that they weren't actually going to leave. <laughs> Oops, you know. Anyway, this guy is now back as foreign secretary, no less. Um, which, you know, if, if we're talking about this, the symbolism of, of Suella Braverman maybe representing the Tory rights and perhaps having ambitions to come back later, uh, next general election or or beyond uh, as a as a figurehead of of the Tory right, um, David Cameron is is very much the the Tory 
centre, which is just this amorphous, bland, vacuous ideological centre that isn't really distinguishable from the centre left in British politics. It's it's a force in, in British politics that is basically a conservative in name only. Um, the writer Peter Hitchens has has talked about this for, for years and basically Cameron's return just proves every single one of his points. Um, so anyway, the, the short answer is that Suella Riverman's firing um, shows that the, the centre is in charge of the Tory party, but uh, the centre cannot hold. Uh, yeah, no, this is this is why I really wanted to talk to you about this, because I, I don't even know that anything about the approval or the like dynamics within the party. But nevertheless, it does seem like there's this top line ideological split that essentially um, the mainline party of the right does not represent or does not want to represent the kind of sentiments that Braverman wrote about in her op-ed or that she's generally stood for, which frankly, to me, sound extremely obvious. Um, and like, I, I noticed this when I, I attended NatCon in, in um, there's a conference in the UK, um, in, in London a, a bit ago. And it, it's funny because she, among other people, she spoke and the sentiments that she expressed would be actually put her very much in the center of the Republican party, um, which as I've said many times on this podcast, I'm far to the right of where the center, the establishment of the Republican Party is. Um, nevertheless, like it, it was a reminder to me going in that, oh, like actually the, the signposts in the UK and what, what it is to be right of center are what I would call like liberal Republicans, mm -hmm. right? Um, like the very liberal edge of, of the Republican Party. Um and she seemed to be bucking some of that. And the fact that that's unacceptable within that party does seem to me to be some kind of indicator about the future of, oh, let me ask you this, is, is, is this, are the sentiments that she articulates, for example, about mass immigration um, or about the enforcement of the law um, or, for example, some of her very strong condemnations of multiculturalism as opposed to multi-ethnic uh, republic in 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 the UK, or I guess you guys aren't really quite a republic. I'm used to using the uh, <laughs> the American formulations, right? Let's say a multi ethnic democracy with a a monarchical monarchical element. Um, no, but so she's been quite strong against uh, multiculturalism and the idea of multiculturalism, all of which are quite mainstream in the United States. I think um, not to say that like. You know, obviously, the Republican Party uh, has has had its reasons. The, the establishment of the Republican Party has, you know, not wanted has been encouraging of mass waves of even illegal immigration for economic reasons. Uh, that's part of the split between the establishment and the base, or sort of the corporate establishment versus the sentiments of the base. But like, nevertheless, I don't, I didn't read anything in this op-ed that would be, you know, sort of a bomb to be thrown into uh, into U.S. politics. The, the sentiments seem to me to be quite common sense and and measured, whereas it really does seem to have been a, a bomb in the discourse in the UK. Or is that just being portrayed that way by the party as opposed to the average average citizen? So it's interesting. I think there's a few things going on. The, the first thing is uh, Braverman really emerged as this anti-woke figure when she threw her hat in the ring for being Prime Minister to replace Liz Truss, who is that Prime Minister who everyone forgets even was Prime Minister because she was Prime Minister for such a short period of time. Um, and it helps that she's 
you know, a woman of color. She has that background. She's the daughter of immigrants. She has the the clout to be able to articulate these popular um, anti-immigration sentiments, and they are they are popular. I mean, it's even some people will argue, although I do think this has been overemphasized, that Brexit was a lot to do with uh, migration, right? And and just English working class people looking around and saying, "What's happening to our country? What's happening to our culture?" Um, and 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 voting for change, and so she she definitely is on the side of public opinion with with many of these issues. I think she has a, a charisma problem. I don't even maybe charisma is not the right word, but she does have a kind of popularity problem, and she polls negatively in um, in, in terms of British opinion, um, which I think is is she does have quite a severe manner and so you know maybe she's not the best uh vehicle for this message but the, the message itself i think she she comes across as competent and she's on the side of public opinion one thing which i think does uh cause a lot of controversy in the uk and i i don't even know quite where i stand on this issue is she was calling for the government to consider banning these protests um entirely and of course our our libertarian friends will argue that this is like against free speech and, and freedom of assembly. And there's a very compelling argument that that is the case when you when you can't separate the um those those who are not crossing the legal line, right? So like I say, in the UK, glorifying terror is a criminal offense. Um many of those are not being prosecuted, unfortunately, because as as I say, the police are outnumbered, they they feel unable to, and that's part of what she was complaining about. And so Braverman was saying because uh, of because there are there is so much anti-Semitic sentiment, open, explicit anti-Semitic sentiment in these protests, they should be banned. This this came to a head with Armistice um, Remembrance Day, so our version of Veterans Day, where uh, it was it was last Saturday, where uh, there's traditionally acts of remembrance, especially in central London, uh, with our our war uh, monuments. And there was great concern that there was going to be, you know, the, the anti-Israel protest was going to sort of target these and desecrate these. And, and so some right wingers showed up and they ended up having this altercation with the uh, with the police. So some people will argue and I've heard, um, for instance, Douglas Murray argue that uh, the the threat of these protesters is um is is i mean he i don't know if he's used the word existential but it's it's pretty existential you know this is why you've seen france um come in with you know riot police dealing with riots and and banning them just like they're not allowed to take place at all and this this is a source of controversy because i think rishi sunak just simply does not have i mean that's a pretty drastic measure whether you agree with it or disagree with it it is it's bold takes a lot of um guts to kind of say that's what's going to happen um and i think rishi sunak just doesn't have the the spine for that that kind of politics he doesn't have the temperament for it he's he's the plight um socially liberal uh you know let's be that let's not be the nasty party he's that kind of conservative and so this is where Braverman again emerges really quite to the right of the Tory party. Um, yeah, I mean, look, look, there, there are enormous differences that I feel like just to to catch up the American audience uh, to things that seem 
very extreme. And and as you're saying, I, I do think it's a quite bold move and I'm not sure what I would think about it um, in that context, but just to place it in the context, I mean, uh, free speech in the UK is, is radically more constricted than the First Amendment standard in the United States. We are different, not just from those countries, which we consider not part of the free world, but even from our cousins um, in the UK, the, the American First Amendment is uniquely protective of, of speech to the point where, you know, by UK standards, we can defame each other, um, and, which is something that doesn't, is not allowed in the UK. And you can collect much more easily if somebody lies about you in the press. Um, and I think there, you know, there, there are arguments of why that kind of system you know, has some advantages. Ultimately, of course, I do side with with the First Amendment regime in the United States. But um, just to put that in context, it's not as shocking as it would be in the United States. In the United States, there's no way that the First Amendment permits like sort of preemptive banning of large demonstrations, right? And even something like the glorification of terror law that you're referring to mm. probably would be struck down under the American First Amendment standard. Um, so there, there is that sort of like uh, different development of the freedom of speech, which, you know, the freedom of speech that our founders referred to is one that was developed in, you know, through Anglo-American law. So these are not like wholly separate concepts, but nevertheless enshrined a much like higher standard in the United States um, and written down uh, yeah. the higher standard I, in the United States. If I could States. just come in there as well, is that you're absolutely right to like put it in its context. And the, the other key bit of context here as to why the, there's a double standard going on is that Britain does have quite a, uh, far-reaching hate speech and hate inc- even hate incident. These are non-criminal recorded um, incidents that, that the police pay attention to. And and the the criteria for that is like very uh, subjective and very, very problematic. I hate using the word problematic because it's so abused, but it is it is uh, r- right in this in this context. So that's why we've we've seen people complaining about mass migration, people complaining about pro-Palestinian flags um, being interviewed by the police. We've even seen, you know, a a pro-life activist outside uh, an abortion clinic in in what is is, uh, violating or or argued to be violating the the public spaces protection order. So kind of like a buffer zone. And she's just standing there and she's praying silently in her head and the police have, have arrested her for doing that. So because there's already this this hate hate speech legislation or hate incident legislation, um, the the police uh, it's it is very difficult to enforce that right because things that are hateful by um, one person's standards aren't by another person's standards. And so when Braverman says that these are hate marches, other people are saying, well, no, they're not. They're um, pro-Palestinian marches and if there are people breaking the law at the marches they should be targeted um, but it's a bit of a mess I mean I'm not advocating this system but given this is the system it, it there, it's fair to note the the double standard yeah no no absolutely I mean especially as you noted I mean there have been such um, intense prosecutions of of uh, around things like praying in front of an abortion clinic, something else that, that, you know, actually, I mean, I was going to say doesn't happen in the United States, but doesn't happen to that level. But of course, there have been impingements on freedom of religion and freedom uh, of speech. There have been special sort of corridors drawn for abortion clinics and um, pro-life activists have been 
prosecuted. I mean, I hope now with the court that we have, their First Amendment rights will be vindicated, both the religious liberty rights that they have under that amendment and their free speech rights. But it's definitely just a whole different legal ballgame in the UK, which is why, as you said, this is a bold proposition, but not something that is like coming out of nowhere or mm-hmm. or doesn't have doesn't land the same way as I think it would in in the US system. I mean, if somebody suggested we just ban all of the protests that are happening in in, in New York for example, I think rightly like 95% of the right even would say no 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 this you, this is not constitutional. You can't you can't do this. Um it it does bring up something more existential though. I have to say when I see the videos of um, as, as bad as the protests have been in the United States on this issue, when I see the videos of the bridge in London, right, uh, just with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and, you know, with with signs that are overtly uh, advertising their hatred of Jews, but also like overtly advertising sort of their allegiance, um, their ethnic allegiance in a way that is scary. Um and their ethnic and religious uh, allegiance in a way that's scary. Uh, it starts to, it does start to bring up sort of uh, whether Quellebeck was uh, wrong to place submission in France first, right? That um, maybe this concept that there, there isn't much speaking of the center cannot hold, right? Um, that there isn't much uh, in, in the UK just as, and this is where I, I find it sort of an advanced warning for the United States. Um, there isn't much that they're willing to assert about their own identity. And so it's very difficult when confronted with people uh, from from totally different civilization don't have those kinds of self-flagellating feelings about their religion, their, you know, uh, their background, their righteousness in, in um, sort of in standing for the world that they want to see as horrifying as that is uh, to people in the West. I mean, what does a center right in Britain answer that kind of certainty with? I mean, I, I mean, I hate, I hate to be despairing about the situation, but um, the, well, you are the, a refugee here in our. Country. I know. Well, there exactly. Um, I I don't know. I mean, perhaps uh, perhaps ten, fifteen years ago, we could have we could have let the Tory Party die, right? Um, and it, it, in out of its ashes would have emerged this genuinely conservative party that was patriotic and pro-family and willing to to make the kind of the kinds of moral stands that you have to make um, to to address this problem, which which as you say is is existential. But what that didn't happen. What what we got was. David Cameron, what we got has been, as as Peter Hitchens and others have, have said, this this bland, um, amorphous type of politics that uh, that can't that's incapable and unwilling to address any of these types of issues, and so the 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 problem just continues. I mean, I I I think I think it's too late at this point. I think the best you can do is um, you know let, live your life the best way you can and, and and stand up for the the freedoms that that we have and and you know try 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 your best to to elect politicians who are um who are the least least worst option but that's not really a great long-term strategy and, and I think that's why 
European civilization is dying. We also have it. We also have a demographic problem. Obviously, you guys have that in the US too. But um, I mean, just in pure demographics, uh, it's not going to be the same country in a in a couple of generations. Yeah, I mean, look, as as much as the right makes of our demographic problems in the United States, um, I just don't see them as at all comparable in part because, you know, I, I do think there are political transformations that are uh, at least in part caused by a large wave of migration from uh, Mexico and then further into Latin America and South America. But at the end of the day, the, the sort of cultural or civilizational gap there, we're talking about people who have a maybe reflexive that are not particularly political to begin with. And then when they do have uh, political instincts to the left, it's more like this kind of reflexive socialist um, instincts sometimes, which is, you know, when people say dem uh, demographics are destiny, I, I look at the last few elections in the United States and I think that's too strong. You know, it's, it is, and I get a lot of heat from the right for saying this. I actually see more in America the overwhelming power of American assimilation, and the question is, <laughs> to what? Right? I, I I look at the you know the the children, the first generation of these immigrants, and and I worry about what they're learning in American schools more than I worry about what their sort of instinctive politics are from from their homelands. Even though that is a problem, um, but. I guess I just I find it a problem, but not the kind of existential problem in part because the gap between, you know, Mexican Catholics coming over the border uh, as different as they are from from sort of the Anglo-American tradition. There's no comparison to, you know, North African Muslims coming in into the UK in those kinds of comparable demographic numbers. Um, we simply don't have that kind of demographic mix of the immigrants coming to the United States. Now, maybe we will if we continue to be lackadaisical about it. Um, but I don't, anyway, I, I just, I don't think the problems are quite comparable in terms of their existentialism for that reason. Um, but it, it almost sounds like the last value of uh, the last sort of British value that's actually affirmatively supported by the British center right is politeness, right? Yeah. In the face of this, this sort of superficial idea of decorum and civility that, I mean, if you're at the point where the police are afraid to enforce the law, let's leave aside the second possibility, which is they don't want to. Let's say at least part of this is because when you have hundreds of thousands of, of you know, men marching in the street, um, that, you know, the, the, the poorly armed police of London are just not a match for that kind of aggressive display of power. I mean, that does not augur well for a Britain that looks like Britain. Yeah, I mean, the the reason that the the police, I think, would rather, um, you know, go go arresting as this actually happened, uh, like an autistic teenager who says that the policewoman looks like a lesbian. Um, that is just easier. <laughs> it's just easy. it's an easier job, you know. I definitely given the choice between the angry mob shouting death to the Jews. And the autistic teenager who said I look like a lesbian, I would so much rather take on the the teenager. Like that, <laughs> that sounds like a job I can do, you know. And you know, I it's we also don't have um, like a, a Second Amendment tradition in the UK, which again we we could open like a whole can of worms about that and the the, the pros and cons of of guns. There's obviously a lot of cons <laughs> with guns, but uh, but the police really don't have a huge amount to defend themselves other than 
being, you know, policing people by consent and having this consensus. And you're right, the one thing that we, we've retained is a consensus around politeness and not hurting people's feelings. And that has become almost pathological and self-defeating because we've we've created a whole framework of legislation to deal with people being basically rude to each other, um, which is not only insane in, in, in terms of basic freedoms, but it's also just a huge waste of time and resources. The, the problem with multiculturalism is that it's not achievable. You can't have contradictory cultures um, live, living harmoniously um, in, in one country. You have to have a unifying narrative. You have to have some common theme. And without it, what will happen is the most dominant one will assert itself. And obviously we've seen this, this anti-Western turn. We've seen it in, in universities. Obviously it's very prominent here in the United States, but it's happening in the UK as well. Um, anti-colonialist, the sort of self-flagellating, self-hating ideology, that is is it, it that goes hand in hand with with enemies of the United Kingdom, enemies of the United States who genuinely hate us and, and wish we didn't exist. It, they, they kind of they're mutually uh, cooperative. But what what they're not cooperative with is the freedoms that um most people in in enlightened secular modern Britain would like to keep like the the you know freedom to have sex without the without the state getting involved um, without morality police uh, equal rights for women um, access to abortion uh, th- these are things that that are prized very highly by by British liberals and are not prized. Um, very highly by the the cultures that they've imported on a on a massive scale. So long term, it's not it's not a happy marriage. Yeah. Um, there is something just history is so funny sometimes as it unfolds because uh, there is something delightfully ironic about both the U.S. and the U.K. being equally accused of being colonizers of the world, um, <laughs> as we are your former colony, of course. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, speaking, speaking of abortion, it's, it's, uh, well, first I want to, to say that, um, it, it has been very frustrating. The exact dynamic that you're talking about has been frustrating to me here as well. Um, the only thing that we seem to be able to assert about the West are a bunch of sort of licentious freedoms, um, or license, uh, sort of sexual libertinism seems to be the only thing that we can feel confident asserting about ourselves. Um, So for example, even in the debates uh, over, you know, sort of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and which side is better or whatever, we end up with these absurd sort of dualisms of who's, who's friendlier to gays, right? Like, and there's an obvious answer. Israel is much, you know, doesn't throw them off the buildings, but this is hardly the defining characteristic of Israel or the U.S. or the West at large, right? That the the freedoms that we rightfully grant, including to homosexuals, are, are, are not the center of who we are or are not to be, but it seems like actually... Maybe that statement is outdated. Maybe they are at the center of who we are, right? Um, and that that's very, like, dispiriting. Um, and to see, especially as a conservative, these sort of social libertinism becoming uh, 
the defining characteristic of the West, as opposed to something that is, you know, tolerated or, or, um, you know, granted on the basis of rights or, or whatever else, but becoming sort of this central feature that we then brag about to the world and then define all these conflicts. I mean, the same thing happened with the Russia and Ukraine, right? It was like, well, Russia has anti-homosexual laws. Like, okay, they also, you know, broke international borders in, in Europe for the first time. That seems to me to be like a slightly more important thing than how they, their respective countries treat homosexuals, like in terms of international order. But um, it, it again became this competition of like, oh, okay, well, this this poll shows this. And it really does seem to be the the defining characteristic of the global American empire. Um, and, and that includes our, our special relationship as well, I suppose. Um, you know, but I, I did want to turn to domestically abortion. We've had a series of elections. They did not go very well for the Republican party. Um, and then we had this, this debate between, uh, the undercard, the JV squad of, uh, of, of the Republican primary, um, you know, what was your impression of those elections and then also how that debate went, whether or not it matters at all, is Trump so far ahead, you know, all the all the horse race stuff. Now now you could t- we can talk about our horse race stuff instead of uh, the UK horse race stuff. Yeah, so the election um, it didn't go well for Republicans. I, th- I think it went about um, as well as a, as a pessimist like me expects it to go, but um, I, I don't think it was a, a, dis- a reason for despair either. I mean, like, if you look back to... 2015 Republicans won two governor's races and lost one and this year Republicans won two governor's races and lost one and obviously that nobody was feeling that great after that election in 2015 but as as you remember what what happened the following year um there there was a recovery so it's not necessarily a prediction of how 2024 is going to go I think if you look at Virginia so obviously abortion does hurt Republicans um for for reasons we can get into. But Virginia, you know, I think some of my colleagues at National Review have been arguing persuasively, perhaps depressingly so, that Virginia is much more of a blue state than it is a purple state. Uh, Youngkin's success there was really the anomaly. He he did put in a good effort with, with this campaign. There, there was disappointing re- results. If you look even um, at the uh, Republican incumbent in Richmond, who is an obstetrician, has experienced delivering premature infants, had explained her support for a 15-week compromise on abortion. So this is this is um, more permissive than many European countries, um, and it, it didn't work. It didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't enough. Uh, so that I think that tells you more about the electorate than it does about those um, campaigning. Uh, Kentucky, another sad defeat. Um, but again, that was a lot more to do with the. The popularity of um, of the the Democrat running the Bershier, am I, am I saying that right? Andy Bershier, um, yeah, I'm I think so. his name. Yeah, so he's obviously comes from a from a popular family, and and so you know, there's you can certainly attribute attribute a lot of success there to that, not not just abortion. It's interesting as well. My my colleague John McCormack pointed out that um, so Kentucky in in 2022 had one of these ballot referenda. On, on abortion um, and the pro-life side lost. Uh, but what's interesting to note about it is that while the pro-life so- side lost um, 48% to 52%, on the same ballot, 
the uh, elected uh, Republican Senator Rand Paul, who was a sponsor of the Life at Conception Act. So what this really tells you is part of this post-Dobbs trend, showing that while many voters will um, will support uh, the, the pro-choice side when it comes to ballot referenda, they will also uh, nevertheless vote for pro-life GOP candidates who are imposing strict limitations or have imposed strict limitations on abortion. So there's a kind of interesting uh, issue there with, with abortion and direct bureaucracy or abortion when, abortion politics when abortion is the only issue on on the ballot. Um, and then obviously the, the, the really the, the worst crushing defeat from the pro-life side was uh, what happened in Ohio, um, which was kind of a, a repeat of what happened in Michigan last year. So you had um, really just a very extreme uh, pro-abortion agenda, much more extreme than, again, European countries or where the American public actually are on, on the issue of abortion, which is they support it, broadly speaking, in, in the, the first trimester and want it banned afterwards with exceptions, the, the usual exceptions. Um, but this this went way, way beyond that and uh, eroded parental consent and even threw in some some gender stuff for good measure. Uh, and it won and it won by a significant margin um, as well. So part of this is uh, Republican failure to to organize, to get behind a, a, a message. But a lot of it is honestly just um, they were outspent. Uh, they they didn't have the the, sa the same kind of media coverage. Um, you know, the media for the pro-choice cho side offers a lot of free um, I was going to say propaganda, but free free press, um, sort of uncritically circulate, circulating their side of things, and um, so yeah, it's it was a bad night for pro-lifers. Yeah, there's there's sort of these dueling explanations for let's say Republican underperformance since 2016, and leaving aside 2020 presidential election for a moment because of all the the issues with that. Um, but in, in all these elections since 2016, um, it's not that Republicans have never won, but even uh, they, they have underperformed polls, right? Um, so even in taking the House, right, they took it very narrowly. Every There are a lot of polls indicating a Republican a red wave, right, um, in in uh, the 2020 midterms. And, and that did not materialize except for, importantly, in Florida and in New York. Um, those are the two places where the poll swing of something like 15 to 20 points actually became a reality. Obviously, very, very different baselines, uh, political baselines in New York and in Florida. But those are the two places where a Republican wave actually happened. Um, but otherwise sort of disappointing. And, and there seems to be a lot of these dueling explanations for this. One, of course, is that this is this is Trump's fault, right? That um, MAGA Trump associations drag Republicans down with uh, with suburban voters, with women, um, especially in a place like Virginia, and that free of the Trump image, then generic Republicans would perform better. And people point to polling showing like generic Republicans doing very well. Um, I, I, I have never been really convinced by this, uh, especially as a blanket explanation, right? So it seems to be extremely unlikely that Republicans in Kentucky are pulled down by their association with Trump. Like Trump is enormously popular in Kentucky. Um, it's more plausible to me that, you know, um, 
that they would want they would want to separate themselves. Republicans would want some separation from Trump in, say, Virginia, not only because it's a blue state, but because it is a heavily suburban state. Um, it does have a lot of those voters that exactly where who are not pleased with Trump for a variety of reasons. Right. Um, so that explanation, I'm not totally dismissing it. I can imagine it. It coming into play in a place like Virginia, but the way that it's being thrown out by like establishment types is sort of a blanket cover for the GOP's repeated poor, poor performance and off years and in midterm seems to me uh, an excuse. Like you already don't like the guy. And, and so this is like a reason for you to continue to dislike him. And when of course um, there, there are voters that were added to the party by Trump as well. So he's unpopular with, with some segments of the Republican Party. He's obviously very popular with other segments of people who have joined the Republican Party. Um, and that's really has been more my read on these various elections and less in any individual instance than the general Republican underperformance. And the, the sort of conventional wisdom for a long time um, is that the Republican Party was going to overperform in off-year mm-hmm. elections and in midterms because it had dedicated voters, older voters, people who are um, really, you know, sort of high information voters, they, they were attached to the party and to politics, um, and that actually mass turnout benefited Democrats, right? You can see that in the way that the two parties have positioned themselves, for example, on mail-in ballots and, and a thousand other things, right? The assumption has been mass turnout helps Democrats um, off-year and, like, uh, elections that favor people who are very, very attached or feel very strongly or very... Um, consistent in voting, right, favor Republicans. Um, I'm kind of starting to come to the conclusion that we may see those two things flip um, and that that the voters that Trump has brought to the party are very disconnected from politics. They're very suspicious of politics. They're very down on both parties. They have weak connections to party institutions for many good reasons, I think. Um, and there's obviously this cult of, of personality around Trump himself um, that other people can't duplicate. And it wouldn't surprise me that like a more working class uh, Republican Party, a more Trumpist populist Republican Party may find itself doing better in mass elections with mass turnout uh, than a, a like the Republican Party had in, in 2008. So that's kind of the tentative explanation or at least sort of a baseline sea change underneath all of these specific obviously every election has it does have something to do with the particular candidates involved and the you know particular issues and obviously abortion has played as as a huge issue for democrats um repeatedly in these elections but i'm wondering what you think about that that like general theory that we might be moving towards a more mass populist base for the republican party and therefore weaker performance in off-year elections than in ones that draw a larger base of people to the polls. So I think that I would have agreed with that analysis if we were having that this conversation in 2015. But basically, when Trump is on the ballot, we now have like a proven uh, record of losing. So 2018, 2020, 2022, um, pot- potentially 2024. I don't know. Um, and so, and so I, I Wait, do. How was Trump on the ballot in, tw- in the, the midterm elections? Well, you know, when, when he's, um, uh, sorry, not, not, not in 2022, t- 2020 with, um, in, in Georgia. But the, the I, I think 
I think the issue is that um, I, I can't remember which uh, of my colleagues said this, but it's like we can afford like the the baggage of like one issue, and you know, some will make the argument that Trump is is baggage, um, and certainly you can you can look at um, the defeat Biden's victory as as evidence of of uh, his ability to lose an election, um, and. Others will say that abortion is the baggage. And, and I think Trump has definitely moved very strongly to arguing that abortion is the baggage issue. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, could Trump win 2024? Yes. Um, but I think it would depend on it. would uh, That has a lot to do with the weakness of Biden. You know, we had uh, an article in Politico written by somebody who I think is sympathetic to 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 Biden and basically saying he's not fit to do the job. I think this is the this is the general uh, consensus among Democrats right now is that that Biden is actually incapable of of doing the job. Um, and so yeah, I think I think Trump could uh, could win, um, but I I think that's that's much to do with the um, the circumstances that we're in as opposed to like merit to the man himself. I mean, look, I, I haven't uh, I, I certainly don't have any like instinctive desire to defend Trump on on a variety of things. Um, but I mean, so, so some evidence for the theory that I'm I'm pushing is that the, the um, post whatever you call it after polls. What do you call those like the <laughs> the polls they take of people who have walked out exit of polls. the election exit polls right? Yeah. Um, showed a, a plus two Biden electorate. Um, which is obviously not where Ohio has been, not just in 2020, but in 2016. And it seems, and in, in statewide elections where the governor has been, whatever, like it seems like it's a solidly eight to 10 points Republican state now, as opposed to being a real swing uh, state and bellwether the way it was in 2020 or in, in 2000, right? Um, and so like, if you have a, a Biden electorate coming out in Ohio, I think it's less likely that there's been a 12 point shift um, or more, right, um, in in the underlying preferences of the electorate and more that either abortion draws a very democratic constituency out or exactly kind of the, and both could be true, the reverse of that, that abortion plus like generic down-ballot Republicans does not draw the Trump coalition to the polls. Um, so, I mean, you can say that that's quote-unquote about Trump, Um but I think it's almost in the reverse that the way that people are talking about it, which is, oh, people hate Trump so much that they're coming out to vote against him. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's almost the reverse is that because Trump is not part of the equation, um, that a large number of his voters who, again, have this very tenuous connection to the larger GOP um, are just simply not motivated to come to come out. Mm-hmm. The, the deeper the deeper issue if for the Republican Party, it seems to me, is that. You know, there there's no uh, <laughs> there's nothing about this situation that makes it inevitable that these two coalitions are compatible with each mm-hmm. other, right? The sort of um, mainstream GOP coalition that includes quite a few what we would call like establishment folks, and I, I I do think the rise of Nikki Haley is a reminder that you know these folks are still out there. They are they're a minority in the Republican Party, but people who really liked Mitt Romney. 
and really liked John McCain, right? Um, th- this is this is perhaps not a totally baseless coalition, um, sort of faction of the GOP. Um, and obviously, in terms of voters, generic Republicans or even somebody who's very firmly aligned with the establishment, like Nikki Haley. Uh, probably overperforms exactly among, you know, college-educated women, suburbanites, right? It may be that winning both the suburbs and sort of Trump's working class base is not possible for the party. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, in order to win elections, the Republican Party has to get both of those coalitions. And it may be that they they have such incompatible priorities that no person can actually, like, no candidate can actually unite those coalitions, even though they both have their own reasons to dislike Democrats and the left. Do you think, um, I think, I think that's very insightful. Do, do you, do you think that two candidates on, on one ticket representing both parts of that coalition? I'm, I'm trying to think who, who, the, who, who this combination would, this winning combination would be, but do you think that could solve that problem? I just think vice presidents matter very little. Um, mm-hmm. Overall, I think that there's a lot of sound and fury over selecting a vice president. And they, to the extent they matter, I think it's because, you know, we have octogenarians running for president. Um, <laughs> and so they may end up which is, a, which is actually, yeah, actually very important. But, <laughs> but I'm not sure that, like, people care nearly as much. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I, I, yeah. I just I don't have the sense that, for example, putting Nikki Haley on the Trump ticket was really going to, like, make a difference for uh, those yeah. suburban women who may be very much like Nikki Haley, but yeah, you know, I, I think hate to, Trump to, so yeah, much. <laughs> exactly. And to, to develop your your point, I think we actually see this. You know, I, every time I I watch one one of the um, the debates, I, I, you feel like you're moving into like this parallel universe. Like this is the presidential race um, in this world, and then like you you listen to a Trump rally, and it's like, and this is it in the other world, and it's like they're not they're not even overlapping. Um, and I thought that was obvious as well with the, the the last debate with the emphasis on foreign policy. There was a huge emphasis on foreign policy. There's obviously benefits, Haley, because this is her um, area of, of expertise, but also just conviction. Uh, and with with debates, how you say something is um, is sometimes as important as, as, as what you're saying. And I think that like DeSantis still can't quite figure out what his line on Ukraine is and how he can deliver that. Um, but I did the whole the whole time I, I was sat there I was thinking, what does your GOP voter in Middle America like want to hear about at this debate? Is it primarily foreign policy, or is it some of these other issues that aren't getting as much time? Um, which is kind of, kind of to your point that there's a there's a major disconnect. Yeah, you know it's it's funny, um, it's. It's kind of this has always kind of been clear to me about it on a gut level about where American voters are on foreign policy. One, that they unless there's something really and this might be one of those times where the world seems so on fire that foreign policy raises in the average estimation. Although I still think I mean, overwhelmingly, it's going to be beat out by things like the economy and cultural issues and domestic stuff. Um, So one, that the average American voter thinks very little about foreign policy uh, I think in part because we are a geographically blessed country with giant oceans mm-hmm. on either side of our massive landmass, um, with a friendly neighbor to the north and a, a pretty friendly neighbor to the south, at least by like, you know, sort of global conflict standards. Right? We're not worried about Mexico going to war with us. Um, 
so uh, invading us maybe <laughs> going to war with yeah. us i don't know um but uh you know these are geographic blessings that have largely insulated america and and, and then that coupled with obviously post world war 2 position of americas as overwhelmingly dominant power in the world have made it so that foreign policy is maybe, you know, we're able to ignore foreign policy and mm -hmm. make mistakes in foreign policy. We have a much bigger sort of leash um, to make to make those kinds of mistakes. And Americans probably are right to assume like, okay, well, you know, does the foreign policy that we take really affect my direct life? As much as important as foreign policy is, I think it's kind of hard to to conclude that like for average voter in Ohio, right? Um, that life changes very, very much uh, based on foreign policy changes in America. So I think that's one obvious truth that just like on a mm -hmm. gut level, I always understood that there's a short American attention span on foreign policy, right? They, they tune in, something big happens. Um, they tune in, they have instincts about it. And then over time, that interest bleeds away. And it's, it's, um, Maybe it's part of the problem of conducting a consistent foreign policy as a democracy. Uh, there, there's some, maybe some deeper issues there, but that's always been kind of clear to me. And the second thing that's always been clear to me is that people claiming to speak for these broad foreign policy sort of uh, strategies or traditions um, are really talking about divisions within elites. And that the average American has sort of what, what, what Walter Russell Mead called Jacksonian instincts, which is we perceive someone who's our enemy. They're actually quite aggressive when they do perceive somebody as their enemy and they're willing to support like the Moab. Right. Um, but that they lose interest in protracted conflict, um, that they're not interested in sort of this, this sort of empire administration that even somebody like I probably thinks is necessary uh, for the United States. So anyone claiming to sort of have this grand theory of what the American people think about foreign policy to me has already lost some amount of credibility when it's clear to me that Americans are neither neocons on foreign policy nor they're, they're not um, isolationists. They're not even sort of in the paleocon tradition of, of a real or even somebody like JQA, right? Uh, John Quincy Adams, right? That, that <laughs> Americans have these instincts about like, we don't like these people. We can drop bombs. Like, uh, and, and so anyway, I, I, I've always, I've always felt that these, these battles are, are too unified into theories rather than an instinct on this, this particular thing or that particular thing. Right. Um, and I, I agree with your assessment, by the way, of DeSantis, that he has not articulated an actual theory and that bothers me. Um, I think he has looked quite weak on it, um, and not even, weak in terms of, of facing the world, but weak as a candidate for not mm. being able to articulate something strongly. Um, but it's equally clear to me that I, I don't know that like that's going to matter for, yeah. for, for vo voters. I think there are probably a lot of other reasons why Ron DeSantis is not taking off in the way that many people like me or, or you know, sort of people who scribble on the right uh, mm -hmm. hoped that he would. But uh, I don't know. I, what, what do you think about then if, if we did have this debate that was focused on foreign policy? Um, you know, do you think that Nikki Haley's articulation of what is essentially an establishment Republican now deriv derisively called neocon foreign policy, let's say something that is, is closer in, in line to what the Bush administration stood for, 
do you think this is very unpopular within the party? Because Trump, uh, in one of the big bomb throws that he did in 2016, right, was to criticize Bush over these things, sometimes in very unfair ways, like about the lying us into Iraq, but also in a way that the Republican Party establishment had not reckoned with how unpopular the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, what's your feeling? Because that's all it is at this point. What's your feeling about the way that this kind of Bush foreign policy uh, is received by Republican voters at this point? So just as you were um, reluctant to to go too far out on the limb with uh, commenting on British politics and the British national sentiment, um, I feel similarly now about <laughs> about this. But I, I think certainly at the at the Republican that the last. Um, debate. I think Haley was just really a beneficiary, and I hate to say this because what's going on is dreadful, but like of the moment, right? Because we have this um this war in Israel. Uh it's it's cast in these like moral terms that I think, you know, America's a very moral country. We care about the the fight between good and evil. Um and so and so she's she's a beneficiary of that right now. It it seems very clear Israel is is way uh, eclipsing Ukraine at this point in terms of national discourse and national interest, um, and I think I think you saw that actually in the way that each candidate answered the questions very clearly and confidently on Israel, even insofar as going to say what they would tell Bibi to do, <laughs> which which is kind of like unbelievable arrogance, but never mind. Um, That's how the question was framed, though, right? It's like, what would you oh, say yeah, to yeah, yeah. Netanyahu yeah, yeah, yeah. on the day you were elected? Just, yeah, no, just to that, defend their arrogance a yeah, little yeah, bit. I mean, that, that was that how is, the question was framed. Yeah. That is how the question was framed. And one of them, I think, did did challenge the premise of the, the question. I'm forgetting now uh, who it was. It might even have been Haley, but... Um, but yeah, yeah just the, the answers all began. Oh, I would tell people to do this. And, you know, in any case... Um, I think it was you know, DeSantis, I, actually. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think back. I think it was DeSantis who said... Well, uh, you know, the role of the American president in this case, when a foreign nation who's our ally has been attacked, is not to to give orders, but to you yeah, know yeah. to just yeah, assure yeah. them of our support and whatever they choose to do or something. I think it was yeah. DeSantis actually. That, that's that, that sounds that kind of on, on brand for him. Um, but I but I think my concern with these things, and actually the way you've articulated the way the average voter feels about foreign policy is much more in line with the way Trump seems to feel about foreign policy, which is he he has instincts about people and he acts on those instincts. And there's an argument that that gives him an unpredictability factor, which uh, you can either see as a great asset uh, in the context of foreign policy, or you can see it as a as a great danger. Um, but uh, but I, th- I think I think you're probably right that he's more in sync and when when your average voter is thinking about foreign policy, they probably see themselves more reflected in Trump, who's not an ideologue on it, um, than they do with somebody like Nikki Haley. I I get concerned with the ways in which this um, establishment view of foreign policy, whether it's right or wrong, um, has great purchase in the moment when when things are kicking off and, and there's this great moral clarity. And then as the weeks and months go on um it it fades and and people don't feel so strongly about it and people who aren't as bought in to the the underpinning ideology uh start to to cede their support and you end up in these these aw- awful situations like what happened 
basically in Afghanistan with the Afghanistan withdrawal, um, where you end up making arguably more mess uh, because because of the, the the nature of the intervention. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think you you would have a better sense than than I would about um, how Americans generally uh, c conceive of this, but that that would be my my two cents. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go too far with myself as like sort of oracle of, of the average American <laughs> street. I mean, I, that that's, that's definitely not uh, a role that I would I would conceive well, of myself. Well, you, you've, going, you've been here longer. Uh, that's all I meant. That's, that's true. Um, something that, that really I was reminded of during the Trump administration um, so strongly, or not even reminded of it, but as somebody who tends to be, you know, to think of the world as a series of clashes of, of ideas, um, more often than not, and reminded of the embodied nature of what foreign policy actually is, which is a bunch of men, usually, not exclusively, but usually sitting in back rooms, uh, judging each other and each other's strengths and trying to predict what each other is going to do. Um, and it reminded me of that because one of the things that I really despised early on about Trump was his apparent um, instinct to praise and give legitimacy to America's enemies and to dictators, right? Like, you know, King Jong-un in, in North Korea and, and Putin in the beginning. And because um, whereas I felt very strongly like this is, you know, American recognition or sort of legitimacy should be a prize on the table to be to be won through concessions, um, not freely given. And yet I, I think this is something that Trump has proved wrong actually, and his administration has proved wrong, that in fact, this very embodied negotiation between men at the back, you know, in, in, a, in a closed room and, and at either end of a, of a long table, um, that playing countries as people rather than as disembodied ideas uh, is, is actually can be very successful. Now, of course, there's probably some principles you have to adhere to, um, but it, it shocked me the the amount of success that he had with essentially a very personal approach that did not uh, rely on any kind of like abstract priors as much as it relied on essentially poker, right? And and the force of his own personality and negotiating ability, and as you say, this sort of unpredictability <laughs> and and the uh, the little fear that actually you know he might nuke Moscow if you piss him off, right? Um, this, this was actually enormously effective and, and it has made me rethink some of the abstractions that I had previously held to about these things. Um, and then the, the second thing is I, I seem to have a different problem with neocons than everybody else does. And this is just me and not like something representative of the American people. I don't think, um, or at least I don't know to what extent it's representative. Uh, when, uh, to me, a very strong element of Bush foreign policy and something that Haley is continuing um, is this notion of that, that fundamentally, you know, peoples and nations are kind of the same, right? Even though she talks very strongly against the governments of Iran or she talks very strongly about Hamas. And here I'm thinking of Bush and Condi both coming out after the October 7th attacks. Um, and and kind of continuing their line from that to me seems so completely disproven over the last 20 to 25 years, which is that like, 
oh, you know, there's no connection, no connection at all between the actions of hostile foreign powers uh, and the expression of those people, right? Um, as as a, a like culture or people or a nation. Um, and while I, I recognize that there's, of course, there are complications when you're talking about dictatorships, right? You can't assume that the actions of the government are always, you know, supported by the people. And in fact, even in a democracy, you, you, you know, the government can make very, take very unpopular uh, positions that are not supported by the people of that country. It seems to me that like to totally distance these things is a species of this kind of equalism of peoples and cultures that I so strongly not only disagree with, but see as functionally disproven in, in, in the world. Um, and it, it's not lost on me that Hamas won power first because Bush and Condi Rice pressed for democracy in Gaza because on this recognition that like all peoples are sort of equally um, desirous of, or, or ready for a democratic form of government, this this kind of like equality principle among nations and peoples, and this to me is what has been disproved. Not like maybe it was right for the U.S. to go into Iraq, maybe it wasn't. Right? Um, it had high support for a reason at the time, but it seems to me that that to the extent that we can learn anything from the last twenty years about the failures in the Middle East, it's not that we should never bomb Afghanistan, but that we should never attempt to construct a Madisonian democracy. Uh, and and assume that this is something that people around the world see as their ambition. Um, and so to me, that's the the sort of arrogance of this. And I didn't necessarily get substantially less sort of, if, if you think of foreign policy as being more aggressive or less aggressive, it affected my understanding of our aggression less than it affected my understanding of what's a stupid goal, right? And And a focus on, okay, what's our interest What's what's accomplishable, you know? What can we do? Um, like, and these seem to be very like uh, questions that are tied to facts and individual situations and an assessment of whether a given people or a nation, you know, the kind of assessments that I guess are to bring this full circle that that uh, Suella Braverman cannot write about uh, in in the newspapers of the UK, right? So. It, in other words, my objection seems to have been different than other people's. I think there's a lot of people in the Republican Party that learn from those failures, at least among in this elite tier where people argue about grand theories of foreign policy. Um, it seems to be like the United States cannot, you know, we need to withdraw and take care of ourselves and our domestic problems. Um, I'm not convinced the world is going to allow us to do that in peace, but let's let's go with that for a minute. My conclusion from the last 20 years has not necessarily been that. It, it, it's just been, okay, you, the, the, the error in this thinking is thinking that people think like Americans or think like Brits or think like, you know, anyway, the broader Western world, which does encompass, you know, the, the space between Athens and Jerusalem, that we are the product of a very specific civilization, a very specific history, um, a very specific uh, in America and and uh, in Europe, right? Christianity, Christian history. Uh, in that is, I don't like the word Judeo-Christian. I never have, but like that that is takes in some things um, important ways. Does take some elements from from Judaism, but uh, and uh, that there is more compatibility between Judaism and that civilization than there is, say, between Christianity and Islam, for example. Um, but 
that's kind of what I took from from all of this rather than and the failures of the last 20 years. And it's extremely disappointing to me to see somebody who is smart, like Condoleezza Rice, come out and say, like, there's no rethink of the fact, oh, like, maybe we shouldn't have brought democracy to, to, Gaza, to Gaza, that actually that just means Hamas. She's still on the same track. She's like saying uh, the, the, the greatest victims of Hamas are Palestinians. I'm not saying that every Palestinian supports what Hamas did. It's probably not. It's probably, you know, 50 or 60 percent. It's very difficult to do, do polling, but to, to totally separate uh, these two things as though like this is some foreign imposition of something that has absolutely nothing to do with the ambitions of this particular culture and people to me is not just naive. It's unforgivable after the last 20 to 25 years. Do you think Sorry, that part, was a bit of a rant? No, no, no. <laughs> but do you, do you think part of it, though, is a response to um, the other side that talk in those terms and attempt to kind of engage in that debate? Because the same criticism could be made against those who are still calling for a two-state solution or saying there should be a ceasefire. And obviously by international law, a ceasefire requires both sides to agree. <laughs> the idea that you can get Hamas to agree to, to do anything and then truly expect them to, to do it is like beyond naive so do you, do you think part of it is that's the language of like it or not that's that's the language of um of international diplomacy now and if you want to be taken seriously if you want to not be written off as like a bloodthirsty warmonger you have to talk in these types of idealist terms I mean, I think yes, and and there is something that is part of the American tradition, and you kind of alluded to it um, when we first started talking about foreign policy is in the the debate, which is that, you know, America does see it as itself as a moral nation. Now, how much that's true anymore with the the transition of of values domestically, I don't know, but but sort of traditionally, there are still enough American voters um, who don't, you know, we see America as a force for good in the world. Um, and to the extent that Americans have turned away from wars, it's not been on this blowback basis, right? That, oh, like what we've been doing is horrible and we've been bombing innocent people and that's like, we are the bad guys in these wars. It's simply been, this is not worth it for us. Mm. It's not worth it to expend American blood and treasure in these places, right? Um, and and so that that response to me is a very different one than, say the Chomsky style, you know, anti-Americanism, which is just reflexively saying, you know, America is always the bad guy and our enemies. And it is, that is a little closer to that kind of decolonialist mm. mentality, right? That, that says that it's illegitimate for America to impose its will anywhere in the world. You know, even if we have interests there, whatever our interests are inherently illegitimate, right? Mm -hmm. um, because we're bad. We're bad racist country, bad colonialists or whatever it is. Um, I would, I hope, I, I hope and I believe that that's not actually a very common instinct among American voters, that, that to the extent that American voters are skeptical of our foreign entanglements, it's, it's rather from the very natural thing, which is, you know, we don't want to send our boys to die there mm -hmm. and we don't trust our leadership to, to make sure that their sacrifices are worth it. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's something very worth considering, right? As, as, um, I, I may have not, you know, sort of gone for very far down this, this sort of, I think it, it tends to make us more dangerous in some ways if we don't 
impress our interests and and that on the global stage that there's a, a sort of abhorrence of a vacuum created by retreating American power. Uh, but I certainly don't dismiss that view. Mm. Uh, but but I, I don't see that as overlapping much with sort of this anti-American or anti-colonial idea that, frankly, I think first came into power with Barack Obama in the way it was almost like <laughs> you would imagine that no matter what your foreign policy uh, sort of theory or whatever grand theory of global politics, you you would uh, you would expect that like you would be more favorable to a country or a regime if it were pro-American. That doesn't mean that you know obviously you could still be at odds um, or think that that's that's a dictatorship and it's immoral or whatever. But you would think there would at least be a soft correlation between countries that like us and are favorable. Uh, impression towards them in foreign policy and Barack Obama almost did the exact opposite right like the Mm -hmm. the more (laughs) anti-American he was in favor of sort of democratic revolution and all the most anti-American countries overthrowing more pro-American dictatorships and against intervention where there were anti-American dictatorships (laughs) yeah you know you'd think both on the on the standard of of sort of realpolitik and of of being pro-American you would think that there would be some correlation at least between those things, even if not perfect, but it was like, instead it was perfectly the opposite. That I think is probably not a still not it, but, but as with so many things, right, maybe it doesn't matter what the average American thinks. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's more important what the foreign policy blob and DC thinks. Well, they're the ones with the power. I mean, it, it is interesting noting, uh, especially because Obama's still out there making <laughs> Um, a, a painting um, and, and saying we're we're all complicit in this, uh, but it is no it is interesting to note that the difference between him and Biden, because I think Biden has been uh, so far and against the, the the contrary forces in his own party, he has been pretty strong on Israel. Um, we'll, we'll see how how long that that continues, but um, and I get the sense with Biden that that is a genuine sort of ideological commitment um not not as is often the case with biden oh let me lick my finger and put it to the wind and and see which way it's going like i I feel like on this it's something deeper than that yeah i hope so i think uh biden himself when he ran in 2020 described himself as a transitional figure and i think both because of his age and because of the direction of his party he's likely to be exactly that but um i guess i guess we'll see um madeline Kearns, thank you so much for uh, coming back on high noon you'll hear more from maddie since we're we have this new new uh format and i hope to have her back multiple times um and and chat with her many more times but thank you so much especially for talking us through some of the uk politics because uh it's always nice not to be not to be a fool <laughs> of course my pleasure and thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.